for your leadership in that area. Um, as Jeffrey said, my name is Bob Irving. I'm one of the pastors here, and on behalf of the leadership team, I do want to welcome you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Um, if you are new, there is a connection card in the seat pocket in front of you. We invite you to pull that out, fill that out, let us know that you are here so that we can uh, get in touch with you and let you know about the different things that are coming up in the life of our church body. And uh, also, on the back of that card, there is an opportunity for you to uh, uh, put down a prayer request. We do pray for you throughout the week, and so we would love to hear how we can pray for you. So fill that out, drop that on the offering plate later in the service, and uh, we would uh, be uh, uh, overjoyed by that. Uh, now, just a couple things that are coming up in the life of our church body. We're taking that at the end of the service, guys. Um, in the life of our church body, the first thing I want to let you know is that uh, we have a men's breakfast coming up on June the 2nd uh, from 8 to 9.30 a.m. We have a special speaker. Uh, details about this are in your bulletin. Dr. Brian Moore is going to be coming sharing about things that are happening in the Middle East. So uh, you can read more about his bio in your uh, bulletin, but it's just going to be a great morning. There's, of course, going to be great food, and um, it's going to be an awesome morning. So mark your calendars for that, men's breakfast, June 2nd. Uh, secondly, uh, there is a, a teen car wash fundraiser coming up. We do this every year, and this is always a uh, major fundraiser for our uh, our, uh, our, our teenagers, and they're going this summer to a uh, mission trip in Houston. So uh, there's going to be a couple of them in the back, uh, in the lobby after the service. Uh, you can sign up and pledge for how many cars uh, uh, they're going to be getting. Their goal is always 100, but uh, each time we, they come, we pledge uh, 25 cents per car, and then your donation will be $25 after the event is done. And also make sure you bring out your cars on the actual day uh, so that they can reach that 100-car goal. And then finally, on June uh, 3rd, we're having something called The Bridge, which is our newcomer's welcome. Uh, if you've been here and you're new, maybe say about six months or so, uh, this is an awesome opportunity for you to come out, meet the, um, uh, meet the pastors, meet the uh, leadership team, meet some of the elders, and uh, it's going to be over at my house, which is actually just kind of in the backyard of the church. Uh, we're going to have a barbecue, and you can ask any questions about the church, our vision, mission, how you can, how you can get connected. Uh, it's going to be an awesome time for us to do that. So mark your calendars, June 3rd, that's a Sunday, after the service at 1230. Uh, we'll meet in the back lobby, and then we'll walk over uh, together for that. Now we're going to continue with our worship, uh, with the preaching of the word, and before we do that, I'd like to invite you to join me for the scripture reading. We're going to be reading out of the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Uh, I'll be reading up here. You can also find that in your pew Bible, or uh, the Bible in your chair as well. Romans 5, verses 1 to 11, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me before we start? Father God, we come before you today and we praise you for who you are, for what you have done. Father, we praise you for what you're doing in the life of our church body, in individual lives. Lord, we praise you specifically for Adam and for his profession of faith this morning and how you reached out to him and you rescued him. And Lord, now he's different. There's new life there. And so, Father, as we come to your word this morning and consider the question, what is the gospel? Father, may you encourage us. Father, may you open up hearts today, maybe for the first time And maybe you would wake up some of us who are a bit sleepy, Lord. So we ask that you would come, that you would speak, Holy Spirit, that my words would fade and that you would receive glory. And in Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. Well, on a warm Southern California day in June 2002, a man named Richard Van Pham set out on his 26-foot sailboat from Long Beach Harbor for a three-hour adventure to Catalina Island, not far away. The 62-year-old Vietnamese immigrant was not prepared for the harrowing experience that would last nearly three months. As evening approached, a storm blew in, and the winds were so strong they broke the mast and rudder on his boat. When he tried to call for help, he discovered his radio wasn't working, and so his outboard motor was also broken. Unable to steer or control his boat, he was carried by the waves and wind, and the 25-mile Voyage turned into a 2,500-mile journey of desolation and survival. Because Van Pham had no other family members, no one filed a missing persons report or initiated a search, and so he drifted at sea looking in vain for any sign of land. He recounted this later. He says, I didn't know where I was or where to go. For months, I saw nothing. I saw only water. Uh, sky, seagulls, unaware of where he was, he drifted aimlessly and survived by eating sea turtles, fish, and seagulls, and by drinking rainwater. But on September 17th, 2002, help finally arrived. A Navy P-3 patrol plane spotted the broken down vessel almost 300 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, way to the south of California. A nearby frigate proceeded to pluck Van Pham from his disabled craft, drop him off in Guatemala where he flew back to Southern California. Now that is quite the story, but may I ask, have you ever felt like you were off course? Like you've lost sight of the thing that keeps you anchored, the main thing. And before you know it, you're 300 miles in in a direction you didn't know you were going. You're lost. And like Van Pham, many people, I think, are lost, unable to save themselves, with life taking them where they don't want to go. And without help from God, they are goners. And I might say this for us, too. Without help from God, we, you and I, would be goners. And never a truer statement, I think, has been spoken. Because if you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, there was indeed a time when you were lost at sea, when you were a goner. Until Jesus stepped in and saved you. Just imagine how Richard Van Pham felt when he saw that plane fly overhead. Imagine the feeling of thinking that you were going to die alone, lost at sea, to realize that now you're alive. Wow. And that's what it's like when Jesus Christ steps in your life and rescues you. Now, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. 
and it feels like you're still lost at sea, well, I want to tell you at the outset here today that there is good news, that God came on a rescue mission for us, that the apostle Paul writes succinctly in his first letter to his protege, Timothy, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he says, of whom I was the worst. Now, that's the simplest explanation of what we call the gospel message in all of Scripture. The gospel is a message about how we have been rescued from peril. And yet, I think we have a problem as Christians. We've heard that message, but at some point in our lives, it stops being the main thing in our life. At the beginning, the gospel is everything. You're like Adam getting up there, and, and it's exploding with how God has changed your life. And at some point, that changes. At some point, it stops being the center. When Richard Van Pham was rescued, I'm sure he was grateful. But I wonder if that feeling of gratefulness waned over time. Did he forget how his heart was gripped when he was saved? Because I think the same thing happens to us, friends. We cannot forget the amazing truth and grace of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul writes this in the first chapter of his letter to the Roman church. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. See, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And if it is the power of God for salvation, shouldn't it be at the center of everything that we do and how we live? Why else do we do what we do if not seeking to save souls and see lives transformed? Now, we're continuing a series today around our core values of the church. We've talked about a couple things in the first few weeks. Today, we're talking about what it means to be gospel-centered. Or put simply, what we want to highlight today is this. We believe the gospel is the center of everything that we do. Today, we're going to talk about the gospel. More specifically, we're going to talk about what it means to be a gospel-centered church and gospel-centered people. Now, when you hear a statement like this, it raises at least two questions. First, what is the gospel? And secondly, what does it mean to be centered on the gospel? Now, within the church, you might say, well, that that answer to the first question is assumed. Doesn't everyone who's a Christian, Pastor Bob, know what the gospel is? And I would say, Yes, but I, I, if I were to go around this whole room and ask everybody the question, what is the gospel, I am not convinced that I would get the same answer from everybody. Some of us might get close. We might say part of the gospel, but I'm not confident we would be able to articulate the full gospel. And so we ask, what is the gospel? Author Greg Gilbert wrote a book with that same title, What is the Gospel? And in one chapter, he shares how he asked a number of church people this question and got some different responses. Here's some examples of the responses he got. Somebody would say, well, the good news is that God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to fill your life with new wine, but you, are you willing to get rid of your old wineskins? Will you start thinking bigger? Will you enlarge your vision and get rid of those old negative mindsets that hold you back? Now, that sounds good, but I may ask, is that the gospel? Well, indeed, through the gospel, God does give us new life, but it does not come about by us trying harder, getting a bigger vision, or getting rid of old mindsets. The new life comes by grace through faith. How about this one? He says, as a a person said, as a Christian, I am simply trying to orient myself around living a particular kind of way, the kind of way that Jesus taught is possible. And I think the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. 
The first Christians announced this way of Jesus as the good news. Is that the gospel? While I believe that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live, it is not the gospel in and of itself. It is the result of being changed by the gospel. Indeed, if you've experienced the new birth, if you've repented of your sins and surrendered your life to Christ, the gospel should shape everything that you do. However, I would say that we should live differently, but we have to be clear. The results of the gospel are not the gospel itself. Or, as one preacher put it, the gospel is the good news that creates a life of love, but the life of love itself is not the gospel. Now, all these statements have elements of truth in them, perhaps even elements of the gospel in them, but they don't tell the first story, the full story. But let's just say that we can articulate the gospel well and accurately. Let's just assume that. I'm even less confident if we went around the room that anybody could tell me what it means to be centered on the gospel. So let's consider today what it means to be centered on something. Or put it a different way, what is the main thing of our church? Is it great small groups? Are we a friendly church? Do we have good family ministries or good preaching? Because here's the problem. None of those things are the gospel. They're a result of the gospel. Only when the gospel is the main thing of the church will everything be shaped by it. Author and scholar D.A. Carson describes it this way. He says, The gospel must be regularly presented not only as a truth to be received and believed, but the very power of God to transform One of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and richly understood, ought to shape everything we do in the local church, all of our ethics, all of our priorities. And it's only when we understand the gospel rightly and apply it to everything that we do that we will truly be gospel-centered. And so here is my task this morning. I want to be clear about what the gospel is, and I want to make a case for how and why the gospel should shape everything we do, because we want to be a gospel-centered church. And in order to accomplish that, we have to have a firm answer to the first question, what is the gospel? And we have to apply the gospel to every area of our lives because it is the core of who we are as believers. And so to answer and show you that, I would like to share with you three truths. Number one, the gospel is a message. Number two, the gospel is a story. And number three, simply put, the gospel changes everything. Once we get the gospel deep down in our hearts, we will never be the same. Now, at the outset of this message, I want to mention that I am particularly indebted to D.A. Carson and Tim Keller for shaping my view of gospel ministry. In particular, the first third of Tim Keller's book, Center Church, is incredibly helpful in understanding what it means to be gospel-shaped. So, what is the gospel? Well, before any, it is anything else, the gospel is first and foremost a proclamation of good news. The gospel is a message. Ultimately, we're answering the question, what must I do to be saved, right? And to answer that question, we know that good news is found in Jesus Christ. So let's be clear, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is not a self-help program. It is an announcement that someone has done for us what we can never do for ourselves. In fact, the Greek word for good news in the New Testament is euangelion, which was a military term used to describe victory. A scout would come back to a city after a battle had been won, and they would announce to the whole city, euangelion, victory has come. 
And so the enemy was defeated. The good news of the gospel is an announcement that Jesus Christ has defeated our enemy and made right our relationship with God. And so Paul spends the first four chapters of his letter to the Roman church explaining this, laying out who God is in our state before him. In chapter 1, he tells us that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe the gospel. But then he takes the rest of chapter 1, 2, and the beginning of chapter 3 to explain the devastating reality of our sin Indeed, we've worshipped created things rather than the creator. We are deserving of the wrath of God. No one is righteous, he says. Then we get to Romans 3.21, where Paul writes, But now, but now, the righteousness of God, the dikaiosune theu, has been manifested in the Greek. In fact, in my Greek class, we learned that the Greek word for but here is Allah. And there's two different ways of saying but in the Greek language. This is the big but. It means here that something was so bad was going on, but God stepped into our situation. How? By sending his son, the righteous one who never sinned, Jesus Christ, to be our substitute, to die in our place, to pay our ransom, to appease the wrath of God, to give us his righteousness, and on the third day rise again in victory. This is the gospel. Now, We are justified, meaning God declares us righteous because of his son, and that is good news. Nowhere is this clear in the whole Bible and in the first few chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, where you and I, he essentially describes, were on that boat like Richard Van Pham, lost at sea, and God didn't leave us there. He came to rescue us. He came for us, and all we can say is what mercy. And so when we get to chapter 5 of Romans, uh, Paul is beginning to burst at the seams with this reality. He says, therefore, as a result of everything I just said, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, as a result of everything I told you, things are different. We no longer are his enemy. We're part of his family. That's the message. And it's a message that has answered some crucial questions for us that we all need to grapple with. First, there's a question that all of us have to answer. To whom are we accountable? And the answer is God. That's what Paul spent the first couple chapters going over. And if you take notice in chapter 5, verse 1, it says we have peace with who? We have peace with God, the creator of the universe, our maker. In other words, God created you, he created me, and we're accountable to him. Now, if I'll be honest... This is not popular in our culture. I mean, it's very countercultural. We live in a world where we don't want people to tell us what to do. We don't want people to hold us accountable. We want to be our own God. But here's the reality. We're not God. We're not God. This isn't our party. This world is God's party. He makes the rules. He's the king. He is holy and righteous, and he demands that we are holy and righteous as well. But... We aren't. So, what's our problem? That's the second question. What's our problem? It's sin. Now talk about another word that this day and age hates. It is taboo to tell anyone that they are wrong or living immorally. We can't do that. I mean, after all, don't we make our truths, our own truths that should be celebrated? I've heard it said that the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. 
And so Romans 5.1 indicates that we now have peace with God, which means at one point in time, we didn't have peace with God. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that we did live immorally, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all lived for ourselves and actively disobeyed God in both action and thought. We try to take God's place. We are his enemies, Scripture says. What's the result? The holy God, our creator, must punish sin. But God, in his sovereign grace, offers a solution. So third, what's the solution? And it's Christ. Christ. Paul tells us the solution so eloquently in Romans 5, 6 to 8, where he writes, For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were weak, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us, the ungodly. See, the death and burial of Jesus has made atonement for our sins, and the resurrection of Jesus showed us that he defeated sin, hell, death, and Satan, and one day we will reign with him. Amen. In his love, he became our solution. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So finally, how can my relationship be made right with God? By faith. What's our response? Paul tells us in Romans 5, 2, through him we, also have ob- we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope and glory of God. We've obtained access to grace by how? By faith. See, we respond to the message by repenting or turning away from our sins, placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone by surrendering our lives to him. In Acts 2, the first Christians asked Peter this question, what must we do to be saved, Peter? And he replied, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, you will be saved and you can rejoice at the hope of future glory with God. Repent of our sins and former way of life. Turn to Jesus, place your faith in him and him alone, not by works, Not by living a moral life, not by being a good person, but by faith in the only one who can save. See, the gospel is the message of good news for individuals who believe. God, sin, Christ, faith. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And when we do respond, it's amazing. It changes our lives. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know where everyone is in this room spiritually, but I'll I'll just share with you. I grew up in the church, and I didn't get this at first. See, my motivation for going to church was to receive an attendance award at the end of the year. I'm not kidding. I mean, I, listen, I, I did not miss more than three weeks of Sunday school while I was growing up because I knew I would receive that pin to go on my, on my chest at the end of the year when I was done, showing that I had put forth my diligence. I had, you know, by my efforts and my good standing, I had earned that And I still remember the year that I missed four weeks. It was because I had baseball practice on a Sunday morning. And I was devastated because I didn't get the pin. I had fallen short because my moral efforts had failed. And it wasn't until a couple years later that I truly heard the gospel preached and realized that my standing with God was not based on what I had done, 
but what he had done for me. I was a sinner. I needed a savior. My religion had told me that it was about me doing more and being better. But what does the gospel say? It says, it is done. My sins have been paid in full. And his love has been poured into my heart and your heart too, if, you, if you've done that. When we recognize, when we place our faith in him and trust in him. So with tears in my eyes and on my knees, that's what I did. Because I recognize that the gospel is an announcement. It's a message of good news, that Christ had died for me, poured his love into my heart through his Holy Spirit, and all I can say is what grace, what assurance. It's a message to be proclaimed, God, sin, Christ, faith. In fact, that's so important. Let's say that together. Ready? One, two, three. God, sin, Christ, faith. Good. Now, maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. I implore you, to recognize that you are accountable to God and you have sinned. But God, in his mercy, sent his son for you. And if you repent and place your faith in him, you will be saved. Because the gospel is a proclamation. Before it is anything else, it must be spoken. You know, there was a famous saying that went like this. We need to preach the gospel, but if necessary, use words. And I get that. But it's incomplete. Because the gospel message must be spoken I heard somebody once say the gospel is the power of God in verbal form. It changes people's lives. However, the gospel is also a message about the hope of the world. That if we look beyond the individual, we see the gospel's effects moving beyond the individual to the world. And so you might ask, what is the hope of this world? Well, we find it in our second point, the gospel story that permeates all of scripture. Because the gospel is a message, but it's also a story. And so this is crucial to see because when we look through the Bible and we see themes of creation and fall, of rescue and grace, and ultimately where history is leading, when we see those themes, we can find ways to preach the gospel message throughout all of Scripture. That the gospel story addresses that question, what hope is there for this world? And so Paul offers a hint at this gospel story as he continues in Romans 5, if you skip down to verse 12, he writes, therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because it's here that we start to see the far-reaching effects of the curse. Notice that Paul says sin entered the world through one man, which indicates there was a time when sin was not in the world. And if you're familiar with the Bible and the Bible story at all, you know this was the time of the Garden of Eden. And so the gospel story has chapters that answers fundamental questions about us and the world, just like the message does. First, where did we come from? Where did we come from? And the, the Bible's response is creation, right? Scripture tells us in the book of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. He is infinite in power, goodness, and holiness, and yet he's also a personal, loving God who speaks to us through the Bible. And this world is not an accident. It's his creation. Now, some may object, just like to the gospel message, and say this point raises objections in our modern culture, that perhaps you have a secular scientific background and you think, well, there's no way that God exists and he couldn't possibly have had a hand in creating the world. But the Bible story says this, in the beginning, God. 
at the pinnacle of creation, God made us human beings. The Christian worldview tells us that God himself existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally enjoying love for one another and being in community. And so he created us in his image. God created us to share in his love and service, which leads to a second question. Why did things go so wrong? Why are things so bad? And the chapter of that is the fall. And we know this one very well, that sin entered the world through one man, Paul tells us, death spread throughout the whole human race. Now listen, if you're a human being, you have felt the effects of the fall. Just turn on the news. There's war. There's a new cancer they've discovered. There's divorce. There's oppressive governments. We know this world is messed up. Because our relationship with God is broken, all other relationships are broken to some extent. Disease and death are rampant in our world because our world lives under the power of sin's curse. Because we try to take God's place. Look what happened. And yet we still do this. Case in point, maybe you've heard of Kanye West. He's been in the news recently. But beyond that, He's a hip-hop producer and rapper, and he said one time he wants a new version of Scripture. This would not be so bad or unusual, except that he thinks he should be a character in the new Bible. Kanye said this, I bring up historical subjects in a way that makes kids want to learn about them. I'm an inspirational speaker. I changed the sound of music more than one time, which is debatable. For all these reasons, I'd be a part of the Bible. I'm definitely in the history books already, he says. Now, some may roll your eyes or raise an eyebrow and wonder if West isn't one step shy of blasphemy, or at worst, however, he's simply stating the obvious. He is already in the Bible, as we all are. Anytime Scripture speaks of sinners that a holy God died to save, the Bible is talking about Kanye, and he's talking about us. We know things are bad in the world, and we long for an answer to this question, what will put things right? And the answer is redemption. That the rest of the story of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation is about God redeeming and saving a people for himself. That Jesus came to save individuals, but he also came to put things right in this world. Romans 5, 15 and 16, Paul writes, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Do you see what he's saying? That Jesus Christ came to earth, lived among us, died as our substitute. Therefore, through this salvation by grace, he justified us. He declared us right, forgiven. And our broken stories have been rewritten. Because all of us are in need of redemption. All of us are sinners in need of a savior. And so the Bible's story is our story. And all the things in this world will be made right because the gospel is the hope of the world. Which leads to the final question. How will the world be made right? And the final chapter is restoration. Romans 8, 19 and 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
That at the end of, the time, of time, Jesus Christ will come back and finally defeat death. He will bring justice to earth and all things will be made right. See, the first time he came to earth, he came in weakness to suffer for our sins. But the second time he comes, he will judge the world and put an end to all evil, suffering, decay, and death. The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and there will be new heavens, new earth. You see, Christ's salvation does not merely save our souls so we can escape the pain of the curse on this physical world. Rather, the final goal is the renewal and restoration of the material world and the redemption of both our souls and bodies. It will be the greatest story ever told. And it is a message to a dying world of hope. See, the gospel is a story that needs to be told and retold. Gospel is a message to individuals and it is seen in the story of how God is rescuing and redeeming a people for his glory and how one day he will come back and remake this world. The Bible began in the garden, but it ends in a city with a new heavens and a new earth. And to that I can simply say, wow, what a story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are the four acts of the gospel story throughout scripture. So let's say those as well. One, Two, three. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What is the gospel? It is the good news that God is rescuing people and restoring the world for his glory. We have to be clear on that. However, the second question that I raised at the beginning is important for our lives. What does it mean to be gospel centered? We'll become gospel centered when we recognize our third point that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So let's bring it home. In order for us to be gospel-centered, we must recognize that there is no one part of life that the gospel does not touch. That the announcement of good news needs to be infused in our lives because we've received a heart transplant. And Paul gets to this point in Romans five seventeen. if you skip down a little further. For if, he says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Don't you see that death reigned, meaning death was king, through the one man, Adam, but righteousness reigns through Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel changes everything. Death has been reversed. Sin is powerless. Through Christ, we have the power to live a transformed life. Do you know what it means to be gospel-centered? Ask yourself how the free gift of righteousness reigns in your life. Commentator R. Kent Hughes unlocks the key to seeing this heart transformation. In this verse, he says we need to meditate on two things and review them over and over again. First, he says, we need to review all the time, every day, the greatness of our ruin. Do you realize that apart from Christ, you and I were ruined? We were like Richard Van Pham, lost at sea, eating turtles and seagulls and drinking rainwater, and that doesn't sound very good to me. We were as good as dead. Review that every day, and that will change your perspective on life. And number two, review the greatness of our rescue. Church, we need to review the greatness of our rescue more 
and more. We need to be like the man lost at sea when the plane flew overhead. We need to remember how that hope felt when it was welling up in our hearts, and we never can forget. But here's the problem. And the reason we're not gospel-centered many times is that many of us along the way have bought into the idea that the gospel is something that we graduate from. We often think the gospel is something that gets us into the kingdom. We pray a prayer, we walk an aisle, and then we leave it behind. But let me tell you, that's not true. We think we move on to the deeper things of discipleship, but friends, we never graduate from the gospel. We have to realize that this message changes our hearts daily and gives us a deeper love for God. Tim Keller says it this way, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it is the A to Z of Christianity. Church, the gospel is not simply the elementary school stuff that we learn when we're babies. It is the high school calculus that matures us and makes us more complete in Christ. Because the gospel is so deep, the apostle Peter writes this, that even angels long to look into it. They long to look into that deep well because the gospel is endlessly rich. And because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle being the main thing of the church. And it has to get deeper into our hearts. Because how do we grow in the Christian life? By acquiring more knowledge? Well, Paul warns us that knowledge puffs up. Now, knowledge is important. I'm not not poo-pooing that. But the way we grow in the Christian life is by discovering just how deeply sin has affected our hearts. And the more mature you get as a Christian, you recognize how much more sinful you are. You repent more often and more quickly. You recognize how many idols there are in your life, how many false gods of this culture that we're worshiping. In other words, we recognize just how Jesus really practically is not the center of our lives. And we run back to him. And you know what? That makes us more humble. I've never met a really mature Christ follower, somebody that I really wanted to to emulate, who was arrogant and ungracious. And the gospel kills those things. It smashes those things. Because the deeper you go into the gospel, the more you realize the depth of your sin and the more sin you kill. Paul wrote this to the Galatian church in chapter 2. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does it look like to be crucified with Christ? How does Christ live in me? Well, it means every day I reflect on the gospel, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Do you know Do you want to know how we become gospel-centered? We heed the words of the preacher Jack Miller who said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. If you come to my office, you'll see that I have that quote posted on my door because I need the gospel to convict me daily and transform me, not simply on the day that I was saved. And if we don't do this, we run the risk of being just simply moral religious people who work hard to change our behavior. A moralist is the person who tries to pull themselves up by their own efforts and by their own bootstraps. They're trying to make themselves look good. They hang on as long as they can and try to achieve everything through their own power, but it always runs out. You see, religion says that I have to behave rightly. I have to be a good person in order to earn God's love. But the gospel says I am loved by a great God. 
who sent his son to die in my place, to rescue me when I was dead. I am loved by God, therefore I will obey and live a life glorifying to him. See, moral religious people can work hard to change their behavior, but their hearts don't change, and they're on a cycle of failure. Because religion is outside in. Let me change my behavior, and hopefully it'll change my heart. But the gospel says it's inside out. Your heart has to change when it's gripped with the gospel, and then everything else changes. That's how you become gospel-centered. Because there is no part of life that the gospel does not touch. And Paul gives us a hint of this in Romans 12, 1. After he's written all this theology, getting it right with what the gospel is, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, when the gospel is the center of everything, it transforms everything we do. That our motivation to live is different. Our worldview is different. The way we do church is different. When the gospel gets deeper into our hearts, it changes the way we approach life. Here's a few areas to consider. Just as practical application, think about this. Think about love and relationships. If you are a moralistic person, relationships often turn into a blame game. Because a moralist can't handle criticism. So their reaction is to maintain a self-image as a good person by blaming others. Have you ever met a person who blamed everybody else for their relational problems? Yeah, I'm probably not the only one. Moralistic people also try to procure love as a way of earning salvation. When they are loved by people, they feel like they're worthy people, which often leads to codependency. You must, you're trying to save yourself by saving others. The gospel, on the other hand, leads us to selflessly sacrifice and commit, but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we're acceptable. We can love a person enough to confront them, yet stay with them, that person, even when it doesn't benefit us. Think about family dynamics. Moralism can make a person slave to parental expectations. But the gospel frees us from parental approval as a form of psychological salvation by pointing us to how God is our ultimate father. And when we grasp this, we, we will be neither too dependent or too hostile towards our parents. Number three, personal witness. The moralist believes in preaching the gospel this way. I'm right, you're wrong. Well, such an approach is almost always offensive But when the gospel truly changes our hearts, we are compelled to share the message out of generosity and love. We are freed from the fear of being ridiculed or hurt by others since we've already received favor from God. Do you see how the gospel can start to change things? Self-control. Moralism tells us to control our passions out of fear and punishment, which is a volitional approach. If you're a relativist, you think everything's relative, That tells us to express ourselves to find what is right, which is an emotional-based approach. But the gospel teaches us that the free, unshakable grace of God teaches us to say no to our passions if we listen to him. It gives us new appetites. It gives us new affections. The gospel leads us to a whole person approach that begins with the truth descending into our hearts. Do you see how the gospel changes the way we live? 
If not, Tim Keller puts it this way. Most of our problems in life, he says, and in our churches, come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. That pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel and to grasp and believe the gospel through and through. And I want to be honest, it took me a long time to get this. That even though I was a Christian, I wouldn't make decisions that were based on the gospel. And there's times I still struggle. I often made decisions because they would make me look good. That the gospel hadn't gotten deep down in my heart. See, Keller continues. He says, put positively, the gospel transforms our hearts and our thinking and changes our approaches to absolutely everything. That when the gospel is expounded and applied in its fullness in any church, that church will look unique. How? People will find it an attractive, electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion. Are we starting to understand that our mission as a church must be shaped by the gospel? That our community as a church must be shaped by the gospel? Are we attractive as a church? Do we have that electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion, or do we just want to tell people like it is? When we are shaped by the gospel, we forgive others because we've been forgiven. When we're shaped by the gospel, we walk in humility because no one ever displayed more humility than our Savior. When we are shaped by the gospel, we are hungry for holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. Are we shaped by the gospel? If you want to know if you're a gospel-centered church, I would simply ask, do we look like that? What would people say about NBC? If not, we should ask ourselves where we are not believing the gospel and where we need to go deeper so the gospel truly grabs our hearts and changes everything. Let me invite the worship team to join me on stage as one more song. And as they do, let me close with a story about Charles Wesley. You may have heard of him. He was the founder of the movement known as Methodism with his brother John, who was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in 1735. But three years later, the evening of May 21st, 1738, Charles reportedly had an experience after a prolonged reading of the Bible, and he wrote this. He said, At midnight I gave my love, my, myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or waking, I had the continual experience of his power to overcome all temptation. And I confess with joy and surprise that he was able to do exceedingly abundantly for me above what I can ask or think. Another author states that Wesley recorded in his journal this statement. I found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood. And two days later, his journal reported that he began writing a hymn. The hymn was likely the hymn and can it be because of the vivid testimony of stanza four in the hymn. And so listen to the words of this hymn, stanza one, and then I'll read stanza four and just let it soak over you. Wesley wrote this, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, who him for me, who him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Stanza four. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. See, when we recognize that we were in bondage, that the story of being released from bondage is the story of the Bible, that our chains have fallen off, that, cha- that changes us deep down in the core of who we are, that you're no longer trying to change your behavior, you realize your heart's been changed from the inside out. And when that happens, the gospel will be at the center of your life and it will be at the center of our church. Amen. Let me pray for us.